hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever thought about how you would respond in an emergency situation? Like, would you panic? Would you run? Would you jump into action? Well, it turns out the best way to respond in a crisis might be not to treat it like one. Today's show is called Crisis and Response, and it originally aired in April of 2016. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. One night, 20 years ago, a guy named Ken Kamler was sitting in a tent about 5,000 feet below the summit of Mount Everest. We were at Camp 3, and Camp 3 is 24,000 feet. Wow. Uh, and the summit is uh, 29,000. So we were... Uh, pretty close to the top. Well, yeah, it was already pretty close to the top. There's another camp above. There's the highest campus at 26,000 feet. Uh, and we had some pretty good weather. Um, and uh, things were actually, yeah, going very well. Ken Kemmler was the doctor on this expedition. He was assigned to a group of explorers and scientists with National Geographic. How many people were you sensibly sort of there to kind of look after in case there was a crisis? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. That's that's uh, and it involves moral issues as well. Uh, I'm there to take care of my team, twelve climbers, and about fifty Sherpas, people who help us up the mountain. But if another climber from a different expedition has a problem, I feel obligated to treat that climber as well. And all with a very limited set of supplies. So the way these expeditions work is that. At any given time during the climbing season, there are multiple teams, dozens and dozens of people at various points along the three-month journey to the top of Everest. And it's a journey that includes stops at four different camps. And so on this particular day in 1996, when Ken was at Camp 3... It started to get really windy and, and cold, uh, and uh, the teams had doctors, but only at base camp. Hmm. They didn't have doctors high up on the mountain. I was the only doctor within reach. The only person who could respond if there was a crisis. Today on the show, we're going to explore ideas about crisis and response, why people decide not to let a crisis define their lives, and how a crisis can actually open up opportunities to change things. Okay, this is Mount Everest. It's 29,035 feet high. So Ken Kamler described in his TED Talk that he's actually been to Everest six times. I've been there six times, four times I did work with National Geographic making tectonic plate measurements. It's one of the harshest environments on Earth. There's only one-third as much oxygen at the summit as there is at sea level. And it is very, very cold. I remember one time being up near the summit, I reached into my down jacket for a drink from my water bottle inside my down jacket only to discover that the water was already frozen solid. That gives you an idea of just how severe things are near the summit. And that is on a normal day. But on May 10th, 1996, the winds were getting even stronger and the temperature even colder. A storm was moving in. And Ken Kamler, like we said, was holed up at Camp 3 with some other climbers. And they were using their radios to track the progress of two others from a different group higher up the mountain. One was Rob Hall, and the other was Doug Hansen. And they were trying to reach the summit before the storm arrived. We got word that they had summited uh, at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And it was already cold and windy, but uh, what made us the most nervous was that 2 o'clock in the afternoon is a very late time to summit Everest. Hmm. Generally, if you're not up on the summit by noon, you should turn around and go back down because... uh, You don't want to get caught in the dark with no oxygen on your way down. In fact, Ken says eight times more people die on the way down Everest than on the way up. So as the storm around them got worse, Ken and his team were increasingly worried about Rob and Doug's team 
above them. We were listening on our radios. We were hoping we would hear that they were all back at Camp 4. Mm. But the radio calls got worse and worse, actually. And uh, Rob said that uh, Doug was out of oxygen, exhausted, could not get down. Meanwhile, Ken got word of whiteout conditions at Camp 4. That's the camp Rob and Doug would have descended to. Meaning uh, you couldn't see outside your tent. Wow. So that meant that people trying to get back to Camp 4 would not be able to see the camp. And even 5,000 feet below Camp 4, where Ken was? The wind was howling so loud, it was like a freight train. The only way that we could converse between the two tents, which were only a yard or two apart, was by radio. What unfolded over the course of the next 12 hours was one of the worst crises ever to strike Everest. There have been movies and books about what happened. John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air, is probably the best known. That afternoon, Ken Kamler and his team stayed hunkered down at Camp 3. The wind was so strong, he says, that they laid fully dressed with all of their gear on the tent floor just to keep the tent from blowing off the mountain. Yeah, no one expected uh, to be hit by a storm like that. By the next morning, 18 climbers were missing. These guys are stuck out overnight. There's no way that we're not going to be dealing with hypothermia and frostbite and who knows what else. And then we got the the terrible news that uh, Beck Weathers had been found dead in the snow. Two climbers had come by him and uh, looked at him and said, Beck is dead. It was a completely uh, chaotic situation. Our two strongest climbers, Todd Burleson and Pete Athens, uh, decided to go up to try to rescue who they could, even though there was a ferocious storm going. Uh, They tried to radio a message to Rob Hall, who was a superb climber, uh, stuck sort of with a weak climber uh, up near the summit. I expected them to say to Rob, hold on, we're coming. But in fact, what they said was, leave Doug and come down yourself. There's no chance of saving him and just try to save yourself at this point. And Rob got that message, but his, his answer was, we're both listening. Todd and Pete got up to the summit ridge. There was a scene of complete chaos up there, but they did what they could to stabilize the people. Uh, I gave them radio advice from Camp 3, and we sent down the climbers that could make it down under their own power. As the crisis continued to unfold, Ken Kamler eventually made it down to a safer part of Mount Everest. It was Camp 2. And that's where he had access to more medical supplies. And there, climber after climber stumbled into his tent. And this is where Ken learned that sometimes the best response to a crisis is not to treat it like one, but to kind of remind yourself that that you've prepared, that you're up to it, that you're ready. I had a little time. While I waited for those climbers to come to me at Camp 2, I could visualize every step that I would take for each scenario. What would I do if he's carried in or he walks in? What would I do if he's unconscious or conscious? What would I do if he's having trouble breathing? You know, what would I do to treat his frostbite? How would I warm him up? I was able to think through all these scenarios so that when I actually got put to the test, I just sort of had to plug in the right scenario. I didn't have to rethink the entire situation. It's amazing because hearing you describe the experience, um, it's almost like hearing somebody, and I don't mean this in, in a callous way at all. It's just it, it's almost like hearing somebody describe like a, you know, a technical manual. Like you were really doing exactly what you had to do. Like you responded to this crisis in a very specific way. Yeah, I did. I think uh, I think it helped me to know that I had a large responsibility. If I had just been a bystander and seeing my friends in critical condition and and seeing them die, uh, I think I maybe would have lost it. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, But I knew I had a job to do, and I focused on on doing that. Of course, all the preparation in the world can't prepare you for some things. In a full 36 hours after the storm hit, something happened that proved to Ken that you can never really know how you'll react in a crisis until you're in it. So just to set this up, 
you might remember another climber Ken mentioned, Beck Weathers. And Beck Weathers had already been seen dead, lying in the snow, a day and a half earlier. Out of nowhere, Beck Weathers stumbled into the tent. Just like, like a mummy, he walked into the tent. I expected him to be incoherent, but in fact, he walked in the tent and said to me, hi, Ken, where should I sit? And then he said, do you accept my health insurance? <laughs> he really said that. <laughs> so he was completely lucid, but he was very severely frostbitten. You can see his hand is completely white, his face, his nose is burned. So as I was taking care of Beck, he, he related what had been going on up there. He said he had gotten lost in the storm, collapsed in the snow, and just laid there, unable to move. Some climbers had come by and looked at him, and he heard them say, he's dead. But Beck wasn't dead. He heard that, but he was completely unable to move. He was in some sort of catatonic state where he could be aware of his surroundings, but couldn't even blink to indicate that he was alive. So the climbers passed him by. And Beck laid there for a day, a night, and another day in the snow. And then he said to himself, I don't want to die. I have a family to come back to. And the thoughts of his family, his kids and his wife, generated uh, enough energy, enough motivation in him so that he actually got up and found his way back to the camp. And uh, I can only try to speculate on how he did it. What explains how he was able to survive? Yeah, you know what? It's, um, when you go to medical school, one thing you learn is that uh, if your body temperature drops to a hypothermic level, there's no way you can survive without an external heat source. Beck had no external heat source. And yet, uh, after a day and night and a day in the freezing temperature, laying in the snow, Beck was able to get himself up. And not only did he get his muscles going to get up, but he got his mind going to the point where he reasoned that he had been climbing with the wind at his back. Hmm. So to get back to the camp, he'd have to face into the wind. And he did that. He actually staggered forward into the wind, huh. and he said uh, he saw some blue rocks. <laughs> and he moved toward the blue rocks, and the blue rocks turned out to be tents. So, you know, you, you really never know how you're going to respond to a crisis until, until that time happens, you know. Um, but I think Beck uh, owes his survival to himself, to his incredible will to survive, you know, far more than anything I did for him. Ken Kamler is an orthopedic microsurgeon in New York. He wrote about his experience in the book Doctor on Everest. You can see his entire TED Talk, which includes lots of visuals from Everest itself, at TED.com. Today on the show, Crisis and Response. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to Simply Safe. Simply Safe is thoughtfully designed home security. It was created in collaboration with leading design firm IDEO, and they put a lot of care and attention into every detail, from beautiful sensors that disappear into your home to gentle reminders if you accidentally leave a window open. It's an intuitive system home security you'll actually want in your home. Plus, when you order your system, Simply Safe will also donate one to a family in need. Learn more at simplysafe.com/radiohour. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who believes that home buying should be straightforward and predictable. That's why they're introducing Rate Shield approval, which locks in your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. To learn more, go to rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica? Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSConsumerAccess.org number 3030. 
Hey, one more quick thing before we get back to the show. This week, we have a great new episode of How I Built This. It's the other show I host. And it's all about how Stuart Butterfield's quest to build a massive multiplayer online game led him to co-found two totally unrelated companies, Flickr and Slack. Check out How I Built This wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And today on the show, ideas about crisis and response, and the times when you have to decide whether a crisis will define you or not. Can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, I'm Matt Weinstein, founder and emperor of Playfair, which is a team-building organization. Hmm. I'm not going to ask about Emperor, but that's a great title. <laughs> well, you know what? That way I'm never outranked at any meetings. No, never. No. In 2008, Matt Weinstein found himself in one of the most remote places on Earth when crisis struck. I went on vacation in Antarctica on the academic Yuffie, a Russian icebreaker, and it was an incredible voyage. Gorgeous icebergs, like floating works of art, and just spectacular, spectacular scenery. And about halfway through the trip, I got a page to go up to the bridge for a satellite phone call, and I thought I knew what this was about. Before I left on the trip, I had been working with a speakers bureau on a series of dates, and they were supposed to call me if they needed my final approval on the deal. So I went kind of running up towards the bridge, up this fleet, steep flight of stairs, because I knew these satellite phone calls were $10 a minute. And at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, this is kind of cool, doing business in Antarctica. But when I pick up the phone, it's not the speakers bureau. It was, in fact, my wife, Janine. And she said a few words to me that just totally turned my world upside down. She said to me, Bernie Madoff's been arrested. His entire fund is a complete scam. And what she didn't have to say, but which both of us knew very well in that moment was, we had just lost our entire life savings. What do you remember thinking when you, when that came through the phone? Do, do, were you just numb? Oh, yeah. I was really numb. I was just sick to my stomach. I, I, um, first of all, I, was, I had a huge amount of shame. You know, it was all-encompassing. I, could um, I couldn't go to sleep without thinking about it. I, it was just overwhelming, overwhelming. And the worst was being in such isolation. Wow. And, and this is someone you, you really trusted, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, he had, was the former chairman of the NASDAQ, you know, in the uh, 90s and, and, and early 2000s when everyone was getting these huge, huge returns. Madoff wasn't paying these huge returns. It was just a pretty steady 8 to 12 percent, I mean, which is still pretty great, but it wasn't like the 20 and 30 percent that some people were making, uh, you know, in the boom years. And... Um, Madoff was kind of synonymous with bank. You'd say, like, I'm going to take some money out of Madoff. I'm going to put some money back into Madoff. And we knew people who had been with him for so long. And, you know, what one of my friends once said, if you jump up and down for 30 years and every time you go up, you come down, you believe in gravity. That's how much we believed in Madoff. Wow. And it just felt like the safest, safest thing to do. But, of course, it was far from the safest thing to do. Bernie Madoff's firm was a complete scam. He took in money but stopped investing it in the market. And when he got caught, tens of thousands of people who had trusted Madoff to invest their money lost it all. I didn't even realize the scope of this thing, you know. I mean, Madoff, I knew him, a couple of our friends knew about him, but most people never heard of him, so... When I saw it was on the national news, I just was stunned. Were there were there people in the in the community of investors who were who lost everything that were not able to handle it, who just were just broken, just completely broken? Oh, many, many, many. Reading things online was something that I stopped doing after a while because there was such violent, horrible comments 
that people wrote online when there was ever anything about Madoff, you know, that these are rich people that deserved it. Uh, I'm starting a pool about the first person to kill themselves because of this. I mean, it was just horrible, horrible stuff. People, you know, having to take their mothers out of the nursing home because they couldn't afford it anymore. Um, 94-year-old guy working as a, a box boy in the, in the supermarket. There were still people who were very, very bitter. But you can't spend your whole life focusing on that person. You have to focus on what's going on in your own life and how you go from here. And, you know, stop blaming yourself and stop blaming him. It's hard. I mean, it's really, I mean... It's really hard to deal with any kind of crisis by just saying, I'm going to I'm gonna get through this. I'm going to think about this differently. It's not easy. It's really hard. Of course it's really hard. And it's especially hard in isolation. And it was only really by breaking through that isolation, by connecting with other people, that Matt was able to start the process of recovery. Not too long after Madoff's Ponzi scheme was exposed, a bunch of people who lost their savings in the scam got together one night for dinner. And one person said, okay, let's just go around and if you had to have done one thing different, what would you do differently? And the first three people that spoke all said, I would not change a thing. My heart is so open. I feel so connected to other people. I feel so connected to myself. I feel so present and so alive right now. No amount of money could bring me to this place. And I was just stunned. I was still in a lot of anger. Uh, I was in a lot of shame. I was frightened about what would happen in the future. And, and, and you know, what it, what, what it, helped me realize was, yeah, there's not just one way to look at this thing. I don't have to be a perpetual victim because these people aren't. It's really not what happens. It's how you internalize it. We will all experience a crisis in our lives. Yeah. yeah. But we're not all prepared for it. And can you prepare for it? Well, first of all, you can know that it's going to happen, that we don't all live these charmed lives where nothing bad ever happens. And, um, you know, there's this, there's this um, beautiful philosophy called basic trust. And what it says is you believe that whatever happens in your life is exactly what needs to happen to make you the person you need to become. It means whatever happens to you, you can grow from it, you can learn from it, you can get stronger from it. And if you kind of Take this idea that I'm going to grow through adversity, and not just through adversity, but certainly what's going to happen to me is I'm not going to be the same a couple years from now as I am now. And most people, the way they make the biggest changes is through having life push back at them. So stress is an everyday fact of life. Everybody has it right in their face right now. But dealing with stress is not something that's unique to our generation. People have been thinking about it for a long, long time. And one of the people who's been a real solace to me during this time is Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher who lived nearly 2,000 years ago, who said, people are not disturbed by things, but by the view they take of them. In other words, it's not what happens to you that's important. It's how you react to it. Pain and suffering doesn't come from what happens to us. Pain and suffering comes from the stories we tell ourselves about the consequences, about the future, about what's going to happen as a result of what happened. Or in another famous Epictetus quote, we cannot choose our external circumstances, but we can always choose how we respond to them. We can always choose how we react. And yes, Janine and I knew that Bernie Madoff had stolen our money. But it was up to us to make sure he didn't steal the rest of our lives. Matt Weinstein is the founder of the team-building company called Playfair. You can hear his entire talk at TED.com. Today on the show ideas about the different ways we respond to crisis. 
And it's one thing when the crisis is personal, when it's about one person. But what about when a crisis is global, when it affects millions of people? If you tell the story of 60 million people, everybody's just going to shut off. This is Melissa Fleming. She's with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. I'm the head of communications, so my job is to, you know, get people to pay attention, um, build bridges of empathy to people. But frankly, it's very difficult. Difficult to wrap your head around the idea that we're in the middle of the worst refugee crisis since World War II. We're in the midst of a mega crisis. Over 60 million people have been forced from their home due to conflict. 60 million people displaced from their homes in the Middle East and elsewhere. And because it's hard to picture that many people, Melissa Fleming told the story of just one person. There's one story that keeps me awake at night, and it's about Doa, a Syrian refugee 19 years old. She was living a grinding existence in Egypt, working day wages. Her dad was constantly thinking of his thriving business back in Syria that had been blown to pieces by a bomb. And the war that drove them there was still raging in its fourth year. And the community that once welcomed them there had become weary of them. And one day, men on motorcycles tried to kidnap her. Once an aspiring student thinking only of her future, now she was scared all the time. As the story goes on, Doa's fiancé, Basim, convinces her they have to start a new life in Europe. So Basim hands his life savings over to smugglers. It's September 2014. Basim and Doa and hundreds of other refugees get onto a rickety fishing boat bound for Italy. And they're on the Mediterranean Sea for four days. Day four, the passengers were getting agitated. They asked the captain, when will we get there? He told them to shut up. He said, in 16 hours, we will reach the shores of Italy. They were weak and weary. And soon they saw a boat approach, a smaller boat. Ten men on board started shouting at them, hurling insults, asking them to all disembark and get on this smaller, more unseaworthy boat. The parents were terrified for their children, and they collectively refused to disembark. So the boat sped away in anger, and a half an hour later came back and started deliberately ramming a hole in the side of Doa's boat. And she heard how they yelled, let the fish eat your flesh. And they started laughing as the boat capsized and sank. The 300 people below deck were doomed. Doa was holding onto the side of the boat, and she can't swim. But she started moving her arms and her legs, thinking this is swimming, and miraculously, Basim found a life ring. It was one of those child's rings used to play in swimming pools and on calm seas. And Doa climbed onto the ring, her arms and her legs dangling by the side. Around 100 people survived initially, and they started coming together in groups, praying for rescue. But when a day went by and no one came, some people gave up hope. And Doa and Basim watched as men in the distance took their life vests off and sank into the water. It was their second day, and Basim was getting very weak. And he said to her, I'm sorry, my love, that I put you in this situation. I have never loved anyone as much as I love you. And he released himself into the water. And Doa watched as the love of her life drowned before her eyes. Later that day, a mother came up to Doa with her small 18-month-old daughter, Masa. And she said to Doa, please take this child. Let her be part of you. I will not survive. 
And then she went away and drowned. Now, incredibly, after four days on a plastic life ring in the middle of the Mediterranean, Doa was rescued. Both she and the baby Masa survived. And Doa was eventually resettled in Sweden. It's an unbelievable survival story. Every time I hear a refugee story, I think, how could you have survived that? How could she have survived four days on the water and still managed to save a baby? Uh, it's an amazing um, uh, story of, of strength, resilience, and also hope and love. You know, it's, it's strange because we talk about this thing as a crisis. Like, we, we talk about the refugee crisis, and it's very distant from most most people in the world, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's there are many different types of people who are involved with that crisis. There are people like you who are trying to help manage it and help get the word out. And then there are people who are experiencing it, who are in that crisis, who are in the midst of it. Yeah. I mean, I think they finally, they've, they've risked their lives to, to escape Syria. And when they finally reach their destination, all of a sudden they realize, I can't relax. I'm in a foreign country, a country that I wasn't planning really for. I don't know the language. My kids don't know the language. And so they have a new crisis themselves. It's a personal crisis. There is something more that we can do than just simply helping refugees survive. We can help them thrive. We should think of refugee camps and communities as more than just temporary population centers where people languish, waiting for the war to end, rather as centers of excellence, where refugees can triumph over their trauma and train for the day that they can go home. Not investing in refugees is a huge missed opportunity. I believe how we treat the uprooted will shape the future of our world. The victims of war can hold the keys to lasting peace. And it's the refugees who can stop the cycle of violence. I mean, this, this is, there are only a few equivalent crises in the world, like climate change, that affects everybody, you know, that has real ripple effects. Because for the most part, people experience a crisis and it's confined to their family or their friends or their job or their own community. And this is something that ripples throughout the world. I mean, even though we may not be touched by it personally, we are affected by it. I think so. I think now what's happening is a backlash in Europe. And we see the result, um, refugees being equated with uh, terrorism, uh, refugees being called economic migrants there to steal jobs. But it's it's the more people understand or the more refugees they meet and the more they know the news story, the more they fear, actually, this could happen to me. And this is the only way I think we can build the understanding. We get to know the individuals, get to know their stories and really understand that they're not here. They didn't come to our countries because they chose to. <laughs> They came to our countries because they had to. Melissa Fleming, she's the head of communications for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. You can see both of her TED Talks at TED.com. Today on the show, Crisis and Response. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible, State Street. State Street Global Advisors teamed up with Elizabeth Banks to make a series of podcasts and films that uncover the bold moves mid-cap companies make to thrive and survive. Each episode goes deep into the ideas that are crazy enough to work, which is the name of the series. You can download the podcast now or just search for Crazy Enough to Work to watch the films provided by State Street Global Advisors Funds Distributors, LLC. I'm Ann Powers from NPR Music. Last summer, we launched Turning the Tables, a project that radically changed how we talk about the history of popular music, with a list of the 150 greatest albums by women. 
This week, we're launching season two, looking at the 200 greatest songs by 21st century women. Check out who made the list and who didn't at n.pr/turningthetables. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about crisis and response. So far on the show, we've been talking about how we humans respond to crises. But what if technology could help us respond better and faster? The number is 741-741, and you text it like you're texting your best friend. I can't take my family. There's real pain out there. Nancy Lublin. And we're seeing it every day. Founded Crisis Text Line. I'm so nervous, and it's making me nauseous. Crisis Text Line is just what it sounds like, and they get messages from every area code in the U.S. And every day, people use it to connect with counselors, to ask for help with anxiety or depression, or worse. I want to die or run away. Before starting this interview, I looked down at my phone because I have the live stats on my phone. And there are 12 suicidal people right now texting with us while you and I are talking. Wow. And Nancy can use every text that comes in. I feel completely invisible. To better understand moments of crisis. I feel like all my friends are leaving me. What do I do? What triggers them and how to respond. I kept saying stop. I don't like this. And it's so amazing to see how just someone being there for them and responding and caring and asking questions and validating can take the heat out of that moment. If any text to crisis text line comes from a suicidal person who suggests they might try something, Nancy's counselors trigger something called an active rescue, which alerts the local police. And it's what happened to one girl Nancy mentioned in her TED Talk. She sent in a text saying, I want to die. I have a bottle of pills on the desk in front of me. And so the crisis counselor says, how about you put those pills in the drawer while we text? And they go back and forth for a while, and the crisis counselor gets the girl to give her her address. Because if you're texting a text line, you want help. So she gets the address, and the counselor triggers an act of rescue while they're texting back and forth. And then it goes quiet. 23 minutes with no response from this girl. And the next message that comes in says, it's the mom. I had no idea and I was in the house. We're in an ambulance on our way to the hospital. As a mom, that one just, that that just. (sighs) The next message comes a month later. I just got out of the hospital. I was diagnosed as bipolar, and I think I'm going to be okay. Now, I would love to tell you, I would love to tell you that that's an unusual exchange, but we're doing on average 2.41 active rescues a day. The beautiful thing about Crisis Text Line is that these are strangers counseling other strangers on the most intimate issues. It's, it's exciting, and I will tell you that we have done a total of more than 6.5 million text messages in less than two years. That number is now more than 15 million. And with all those messages coming in, Nancy and her team saw an opportunity. They thought, maybe we could turn those text messages into data, data that could be the difference between life and death. We decided that we wanted to take people based on severity and not chronology. So when you call most customer service places or when you call other phone hotlines, you're taken chronologically in the order that you come in. But shouldn't it work more like a hospital emergency room? Yeah. Where the gunshot wound is taken before, you know, the kid with the funny rash, the sprained ankle? Well, that's how we operate. If you text in, I want to die, I want to kill myself, we code you orange and you are number one in the queue. So what Nancy and her team can do is feed every text into a database. And then a computer algorithm can start to make sense of things that at first seem nonsensical. Like a few months ago, when the algorithm started identifying people as suicidal, when they texted in hashtag 
KMS. I had no idea what that was. Apparently, it became shorthand for kill myself. (laughs) And people have been using that on the Internet. The algorithm picked that up and made those people number one in the queue. Wow. And so those people are then getting a human eye and a human response in 1.8 minutes. We have the data to know what makes a great counselor. We know that if you text the words numbs and sleeve, there's a 99% match for cutting. We know that if you text in the words MG and rubber band, there's a 99% match for substance abuse. And we know that if you text in sex, oral, and Mormon, you're questioning if you're gay. Now, that's interesting information that a counselor could figure out, but that algorithm in our hands means that an automatic pop-up says, 99% match for cutting. Try asking one of these questions to prompt the counselor. Or 99% match for substance abuse. Here are three drug clinics near the texture. It makes us more accurate. I can tell you that the worst day of the week for eating disorders, Monday. The worst time of day for substance abuse, 5 a.m. And that Montana is a beautiful place to visit, but you do not want to live there, because it is the number one state for suicidal ideation. And we've made this data public and free and open. We've pulled all the personally identifiable information, and it's in a place called crisistrends.org. Because I want schools to be able to see I want schools to be able to see that Monday is the worst day for eating disorders so that they can plan meals and guidance counselors to be there on Mondays. And I want families to see that substance abuse questions spike at 5 a.m. And I want somebody to take care of those Native American reservations in Montana. I'm amazed, like, that you've been able to sort of find out, like, these moments, right? Like, 5 a.m., It's the worst time for substance abuse. And, you know, depending on the day of the week, people can behave, are more likely to behave in certain ways. Yep, it's illuminating. And you can just go down a rabbit hole on that website. And because it's all real time, it changes. So in October, I turned to our chief data scientist when some of the anti-Muslim rhetoric was really heating up in the presidential campaign. And I said, you know what, just pull conversations where someone indicates that they're Muslim and see what's happened since this. And there was a 600% increase in October, and I think it was a 900% increase in November in people saying that they were Muslim and either were experiencing anxiety, bullying, depression, any number of those issues. It's just really exciting to have the data sets and put them out there and ask the questions. But there are people who will then research and find out what, why is this, or change policies based on this data. You know, information can save lives. Nancy Lublin is the founder of the Crisis Text Line. You can see her full talk at TED.com. And if you need help, the Crisis Text Line number is 741-741. So for a lot of people, when crisis hits, a natural response is to find a way to move forward, to find a way out, to not let the crisis define you. But this next story is about the opposite. It's about Kitra Kahana's father, who's a rabbi. And about five years ago, he faced his own serious crisis with both physical and spiritual consequences. That experience became the nucleus of my life. This is Kitra. Her father is Rabbi Rani Kahana. And to understand her father's response to his crisis, Kitra says you have to understand a bit about him before it happened. He was always a very charismatic person, but also a complicated person. He had this very kind of poetic way of speaking. He would do sermons sort of off the cuff, but they would be so powerful. He never wanted to be a rabbi. He thought he was just going to be a kind of like a wandering poet. But then ultimately found his calling 
as a rabbi because you can write a poem and it stays on the page, but when you're counseling a family, helping them through the loss of a loved one, and you're bringing in that poetic vision into that conversation, into the eulogy, that's living poetry. We shall see God's Sunday in the desert, walking through the clefts of a song. He was always my everything. And then one day, Kitra got a phone call from her mom. And she said that father had had a stroke. And I remember just entering into this daze and thinking, everything has been lost. Kitra picks up the story from the TED stage. I walked into his room in the ICU and found him lying deathly still, tethered to a breathing machine. Paralysis had closed over his body slowly, beginning in his toes. It made its way up his neck, cutting off his ability to breathe, and stopped just beneath the eyes. He never lost consciousness. Rather, he watched from within as his body shut down, muscle by muscle. In that ICU room, I walked up to my father's body, and with a quivering voice and through tears, I began reciting the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. At K, he blinked his eyes. I began again. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. He blinked again at the letter I, then at T, then at R, and A, Kitra. He said, Kitra, my beauty, don't cry. This is a blessing. Just 72 hours after his stroke, he had already embraced the totality of his condition. Locked-in syndrome is many people's worst nightmare. In French, it's sometimes called maladie de la mure vivante, literally walled-in alive disease. For many people, perhaps most paralysis is an unspeakable horror. But my father's experience losing every system of his body was not an experience of feeling trapped, but rather of turning the psyche inwards, dimming down the external chatter, facing the recesses of his own mind, and in that place, falling in love with life and body anew. I mean, it's just amazing to imagine the scene of your father lying there paralyzed and for him to express this kind of optimism to reframe it at that moment is kind of unbelievable it's just it's it's not optimism mm. he's reacting to his experience he's not taking a negative experience and seeing it in the best light He's had a transformative experience, and he's reacting to that. So it, it's, it's not a reframe. That's interesting. It's yeah. his reality. His reality is that during the stroke, he had one of the most profound and reassuring experiences that he had ever experienced in his life. He, he was on such a high... He felt that before the stroke, he was always looking beyond the body for spiritual meaning, and that suddenly this whole other world of spiritual meaning opened up to him, and it was right there in him. That, that was his narrative, and I don't understand it, but I honor it, and as a family, we joined him in his narrative. I slept by my father's side for the first four months, tending as much as I could to his every discomfort. We became his mouthpiece, spending hours each day reciting the alphabet, 
as he whispered back sermons and poetry with blinks of his eye. His room, it became our temple of healing. His bedside became a site for those seeking advice and spiritual counsel, and through us, my father was able to speak and uplift, letter by letter, blink by blink. I want to read to you one of the first things that we transcribed in the week following the stroke. He composed a letter addressing his synagogue congregation and ended it with the following lines. When my nape exploded, I entered another dimension, inchoate, subplanetary, protozoan. Universes are opened and closed continually. There are many when low who stop growing. Last week, I was brought so low, but I felt the hand of my father around me, and my father brought me back. How did what happened to him affect his beliefs? I think the, the stroke affirmed everything that he believed. Because for his entire career as a rabbi, he's been with people in their moment of crisis, saying, this is an opportunity. And I think the stroke was his opportunity to live what he believed. And when it came, I think it, it was his natural response. Then one day, from the corner of my eye, I saw his body slither like a snake, an involuntary spasm passing through the course of his limbs. At first, I thought it was my own hallucination, but he told me he felt tingles sparks of electricity flickering on and off just beneath the surface. The following week, he began ever so slightly to show muscle resistance. Body was slowly and gently reawakening. Today, my father is no longer locked in. He moves his neck with ease, has had his feeding peg removed, breathes with his own lungs, speaks slowly with his own quiet voice, and works every day to gain more movement in his paralyzed body. But the work will never be finished, as he says. I'm living in a broken world, and there is holy work to do. Thank you. Keetra Kahana is a documentary photographer and filmmaker. She has an ongoing project with her father. It's called Stillman. You can check out her photos and her full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Crisis and Response, this week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Kelly Prime, with help from Daniel Shugan. Our intern is Maria Paz Gutierrez. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. <laughs>